how in the world can I open this book and say, maybe this is the word of God? So I landed in a scholastic understanding of why I believe the Bible is the word of God and why it is reliable in every area of faith and practice. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. For many generations, questions have been asked about whether the Bible is truly the inerrant Word of God. Is it something we can rely on in all of life's circumstances? On today's broadcast, David continues our Sleuth series in the first part of a message called, Is the Bible Reliable? So thank you again for being here. Are you ready to jump into the message? You ready to go? The reliability of scripture. Three people already on the front row. Everybody's ready? Okay. Here we go. There's a lot of stuff here, folks. It's a fire hose. Uh, go over this uh, material because it is a way to counter many of the arguments in the culture against the Bible. Now, let me begin by sharing with you Newsweek magazine, a national magazine, uh, for its first edition in uh, 2015, had a front cover story that read, The Bible. So misunderstood, it's a sin. And then it went on to denigrate the scripture and people who believe in it as really evil people. And folks have asked me over the last couple of weeks, what did I think of the article? Uh, After I read it, here's what I wrote. It is an irresponsible, post-Christian invective. It's one-sided, scurrilous scholarship written by someone with no biblical or theological credentials and acumen. Now, ask me what I really thought. Um, It was just irresponsible, folks, written by a guy with an agenda who does not have any theological or biblical credentials, who is just basically trying to denigrate the Scripture and force people not to believe it. In my opinion, his writing and other vindictive, vindictive invectives are far from the truth. Let me share with you a little bit of my personal biblical journey. It may help you understand how I've landed to where I am today. Um, I came to Christ late high school, early college, and, and the groups that informed my biblical understanding were more conservative groups like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Crusade for Christ, those organizations. And I grew in my faith throughout college. I went to play in the European Professional Leagues for three years, came back, was at the University of Florida for two years, earning a graduate degree in counseling when God called me into the ministry. I called my dad and said, Dad, God's called me into ministry. Where should I go? And my dad was a mainline pastor, so he said, you ought to go to a mainline seminary. So I went to one. Um, It didn't take me long to feel like a fish out of water. I was continually receiving liberal diatribes about how the scripture is unreliable. And particularly, they were teaching something called redaction criticism. It's been around for a long time. It's slowly but surely losing its influence because more and more people are proving it to be false. But during my time period in seminary, what I was being taught by professors is basically in redaction criticism in the Zitzenleben, that's the fancy German word which means the community, in all the little Christian communities that received the written scripture, they massaged it, they changed it to meet their own community's context. And therefore, one community would believe differently from another community, and therefore we can't depend upon the word being actually the word. And that really bothered me for two reasons. Uh, First of all, these people in these communities, especially in the early church, were committed Jews 
who lived by the Ten Commandments, one of which is thou shalt not bear false witness. So basically I thought to my professors, you are saying that those people in these communities massaged the scriptures and made it into a lie. Why, why would they do that? They're honest, reputable people. Why would they do that? The second question that bothered me was the Roman government began to seriously persecute these Christians in these communities. And I thought to myself, why would these Christians falsify the story knowing they would probably at least be punished, probably die for believing this word? And if they massaged it and made it a lie, why would they die for something they know is a lie? That's not human nature. People die for what they think is truth but is really a lie, like driving planes into buildings and believing that gives you immediate entrance into paradise. The people who flew those planes believed that was true even though it's a lie. But people who know something is a lie, who have made up a story, aren't willing to die for it. So those questions never got resolved. And when I asked them, they never got resolved. So it began a pilgrimage for me to preach the word of God. Because I could not in my own mind think, how in the world can I open this book and say, maybe this is the word of God and devote my entire life to teaching you something that I wasn't sure was true. So I landed in a scholastic academic understanding of why I believe the Bible is the word of God and why it is reliable in every area of faith and practice. What you're about to hear is that pilgrimage. Here are the seven steps of why I believe the Bible is the word of God. I've chosen some scriptures from the Old and New Testaments. The word of the Lord from the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, real quickly, in the Old Testament, God spoke through Moses and the kings and the prophets, and he basically said to them, here's my word. And they basically said when they wrote, thus saith the word, and God instructed them to write down his words, and that's how we have the compilation of the Old Testament over time particularly from the prophet Isaiah. He writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. So when the word goes out, it cannot return void. Then Jesus, answering the devil in his temptation experience, he answered the devil with the temptation, it is what, folks? It's written. There was a written word when Jesus lived that he believed in and he obeyed. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 from the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament was authoritative, even used it to refute the evil one with those temptations. John 17.17, 17, as Jesus prayed to the Father, for all of us today, here's what he desires in prayer. Read it with me, would you? Sanctify them in the truth, your that Jesus wants all of us to be sanctified, be holy, be different, to be conformed to his image, not conformed to the images of this world. And the way that we're sanctified, how? By the word of God. That's how we're sanctified, by reading, studying, and obeying the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, as Paul is instructing his mentee, Timothy, as he's planting a church, 
All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, don't miss that. In Genesis 2, 7, when God took the dust of the earth and formed the corpse of Adam, it was lifeless, it was dead, until he breathed in the Holy Spirit and made that corpse alive. Only then did Adam become a living human being. Similarly, there are written words, but it's only when God breathes in his word to the word that it becomes alive. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul is basically saying to Timothy two things about the word of God. Believe it and live it. So, dear friends, here's my pilgrimage. The seven reasons I believe the Bible is the word of God. And again, these are academic reasons. I hope you'll go and listen to this message again and again and have ways to refute skeptics who say this book is not the word of God. And for those of you who are skeptics here today, might you hear there are reasons we who follow Jesus believe this book is the word, and they are reasonable reasons. And hopefully I'll challenge you, perhaps, to believe this book is true. First of all, the Bible's unity. The Bible's unity. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New It was written over a period of 1,600 years. It was written by more than 40 authors. Those authors came from different backgrounds, which include kings, diplomats, fig farmers, prophets, fishermen. They're poor, they're wealthy, they're middle class, all different kinds of people writing this book. There were three original languages in which the book was written, Aramaic, Hebrew and Greek. The Bible was written on three continents. Yet, with all of that diversity, there's one central message. If you read the Old Testament and then in the New, it's about the coming of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins to restore us to a relationship with the God, the Father on high. Now, what are the odds of that happening by happenstance? They're off the wall. So I concluded in looking at the unity of the Bible, it must be true. Secondly, I looked at archaeology. I don't have time to go into all the archaeological digs that have been discovered over the last centuries, but let me simply say this. In all of the Bible's writings, in all of the 66 books that talk about places, people, situations, There is not one piece of evidence, especially over the last several hundred years when archaeology has become a science. There's not one piece of archaeological evidence that has disproved any fact written in the Scripture. None. That impressed me when I read it. Thirdly, I look at prophecy or the whole idea of predictability or probability Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist, and he was an atheist, and he began the pilgrimage to try to look at if the Bible could be true. And he looked at the creation account, where there are 14 specific scientific statements that are made there in Genesis 1 and 2. And the order of each one of those statements, and after studying each one in depth from a scientific perspective, he saw that not one of the 14 was inconsistent with science. Moreover, the order of creation outlined in the Bible is the exact order that science has concluded the world came into being. When he looked at that, 
He said, the chances of that happening are one in about six billion. Moreover, he studied the Bible and how it says the earth is a sphere. Those who believed in a flat earth theory long ago should have read the scripture more clearly. How there's the laws of gravity outlined in the scripture. How the star clusters in the sky that are moved by gravity that are naked to the eye, are consistent with what astronomers have found today in specificity. Then he looked at Isaiah 45, verse 1, and other places in the Bible that talk about people by name and what they did years before they were ever even born. Example, for those of you who don't know biblical history, the Israelites disobeyed God and suffered his anger and his wrath. He took them into the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. Jeremiah the prophet said, you're going to stay there for 70 years. For those of you who love Jeremiah 29.11 and have it plastered on your coffee cups, God bless you, but just realize that Jeremiah 29.11, my plans for you are good for a future and a hope, were written with a promise you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. So therefore, plant your roots deep. Get involved in the city. Be a blessing to the city. Serve people there. And then in my perfect timing, I'll bring you back because I have for you great plans for a future and a hope. Well, in 586 B.C., looking ahead 70 years, the Babylonian nation was the power of the day, but 70 years later, they were overthrown by the Persian nation. And the king of Persia was a man by the name of Cyrus. In Isaiah 45.1, 70 years before Cyrus ever came on the scene, Isaiah writes a prophecy that at the end of that 70-year captivity, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus will come to the throne. He will speak on behalf of you Jews in captivity. He will restore for you all the treasures that were taken by the Babylonians that are held by them. You will come back. You will rebuild the walls. You will rebuild the temple. Thus saith the Lord. Now, liberal scholarship believes that Isaiah, or at least a part of it, must have been written way after the captivity to specify Cyrus by name. There's just one problem. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were recently, within the past several decades, discovered where so many of the Old Testament was written around the time of Jesus. It proves it. And therefore, the conclusion must be that Isaiah was the one who actually wrote those words 70 years before Cyrus came to the throne. Now, what are the probability factors of the scripture mentioning a man by name and all that he did 70 years before he actually came to the throne? It's about one in one trillion. Moreover, there are 48 prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament looking forward to him coming in the New Testament. And each one of those prophecies in some detail or another in specificity talks about Jesus. For example, Micah 5.2, that he will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 53, that he'll be beaten and scourged almost beyond recognition. Psalm 22 that says he'll be buried in a rich man's grave, which is what happened with Joseph of Arimathea. And on and on, 48 prophecies specifically fulfilled in the life of Jesus, in the New Testament, what is the probability factor of that happening? It is one out of 10 to 157 zeros. 
one out of 10 to 157 zeros. I looked at that, and I said to myself, this must be the word of God. God breathed, written by God, not stenographically through writers who were listening to God and just writing down his every word, but as God became man in Jesus Christ and God became a human being, totally God and totally human, that God worked through human vessels to write down what they were experiencing and hearing from God as his word. And then I also looked at the comparisons to other sacred texts. Dr. Hugh Ross did the same thing. And here's what he discovered as a PhD astrophysicist. He looked at the Hindu sacred text, seeing if they were scientifically verifiable. But then in reading those texts, he saw that Hinduism believes in history as a cyclical eternal reality. It means it goes on and on and on. And it's from where reincarnation comes. It's from where karma comes, that you're reincarnated to a new life and just get what you deserve. But he was a scientist, and he realized most every reputable scientist today believes in the Big Bang. They, they recognize it's hard to argue and understand something, this world coming out of nothing. And that there was a beginning, it's a big bang. Of course, we believe as Christians, it's a big God who caused the big bang. But what Ross concluded that I concluded was that history can't be eternal and cyclical. If there is a beginning, there must be what, folks? There's gotta be an end. So history must be linear. And it was begun with the Big Bang, or Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there is a history that we believe, as Christians, will be consummated when Jesus Christ returns. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in an insightful conversation about this morning's Moment of Hope. We'll be right back. What do you do when you began drinking at ages 10 to 12? Where can your life go when you started abusing drugs at ages 13 to 15? You want to be part of the fabric of society, yet you emotionally stop maturing the day your addiction took over your life at the tender age of 12. I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission and we have served people who have stood at the intersection of homelessness and addiction for well over 80 years. But what is it that they really need? Well, beyond building a foundation of long-term sobriety in their life, how does one obtain the life skills they never learned but desperately need to thrive in society? You know, they should have learned them growing up, but now they're an adult. What do they do? And where do they go? Let me tell you where they come. Community Matters Cafe is more than just good food and house-roasted coffee. It's an extension program of Charlotte Rescue Mission that is transforming lives. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community. You know, and after men and women graduate from Charlotte Rescue Mission's 120-day Rebound Men's and Dove's Nest Women's Residential Programs, they have the option to enroll in the Life Skills Program at Community Matters Cafe. And during the six-month program, students learn a variety of critical skills in a restaurant setting that help them get and keep long-term employment. Community Matters Cafe is located diagonally opposite the Panther Practice Fields at the corner of Cedar and West First Street. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church in this important life-changing ministry in our community. 
Thanks for listening to Moments of Hope. I'm Jen Houston, and with me is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Jen. Great to be with you as well. In this morning's Moment of Hope, you gave us great hope and encouragement, and you reminded us that God's love is not based on our performance. Boy, Jen, if there's something that I could tell every listener out there personally, one-on-one, it would be this one, because our culture is performance-based in its understanding of love. As long as you perform well, I'll love you. I mean, think about your jobs, for example. If you perform well, you get raises. You're lifted up to higher positions. It's all based on performance. And God's love isn't. It's so counterintuitive to what our culture teaches. It's radically different. God does not base his love for us on our performance. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, everyone just think about that. Let those words permeate your soul. While we were still in wanton rebellion against Almighty God, wanting life on our own terms, shaking our puny fists at him, rebelling against him with every ounce of our energy, Jesus still came for us. He still pursued us. While in that awful position of rebellion, Christ came and died for us. His love for us isn't based on our performance. And then when we finally yield to him, so much more we need to understand that non-performance-based love that he has called us to live out with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, the only definition of love that's in the Bible, it's patient and kind not jealous, not selfish, not rude. It doesn't store up the memory of past wrongs. It forgives. It moves on with life's hurts, trusting Jesus with everything. That's the kind of love that we are then to have toward other people because it's the love that Jesus has shown toward us. And think about what that means for our marriages. We love our spouse unconditionally. Parenting, you know, I know this week my wife Marilyn has been on the show with me talking about a book she wrote about a woman of valor, and she has emphasized the importance of valor in the Christian life. Well, she's the one that lived out with our kids. I love you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, a song that she came up with with our youngest daughter, Bethany, where it went like this. I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're feeling good or when you're feeling bad. I love you. I love you. I really, really love you. No matter what you say or do, I really, really love you. Mm. And she'd mess up and Marilyn would start singing that song to her. Or she would mess up and I would start singing that song to her. Well, one day I was walking in the kitchen with a glass of milk and I had some butter on my fingers and I let the glass slip out. It crashed to the floor. Not only did the glass break, the milk spilled everywhere. I went, oh man, I just cried out going, how could I have been so stupid? And Bethany, who's like six years old, comes into the kitchen and goes, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're feeling good or when you're feeling bad. I mean, she got it. She understood the power of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say again, Jen, to all of our listeners, you are not loved by your performance. If you mess up, you're still loved by the one in the universe who died on the cross. Now, Mm -hmm. love one another with that same kind of Mm -hmm. non-performance-based love. Teach it to your kids. Live it out. It's freeing when you do so. I love it. We are truly in an upside-down world, and the kingdom is right-side up. You know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And this is a really good reminder of his kingdom coming. Thank you, Jen. And I just hope every 
everybody grabs it today because when you do, you're never the same. God loves you, not based on your performance, but simply who you are in Christ who came to die for us. Yeah, so good. Thank you so much, David. And everyone, if you'd like to receive from me a written daily moment of hope, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there every day to receive in your inbox at 7 a.m. a written moment of hope from me. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for spiritual awakening in our country.